All right, Mark chapter 9. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. If you're a guest with us today, or you hadn't been here in some time, we just systematically go through uh, a book of the Bible so that the sermon will feel uh, somewhat like a Bible study. That means you'll have to mentally engage. You'll, you'll have to do some work. Uh, you'll have to listen, follow along, and what is it that God's Word says to us? Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30, read down to verse 37. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 30. <clears throat> they went from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray you would help us today to see the one hand, to see the importance of doctrine and to hold it tightly. On the other hand, to, to sense a call of devotion, to live it in a way that honors you. Help your people and help me preach. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Been here at Hickory Grove. January will make 14 years, so a lot of you know by now I like cars. I like all kinds of cars. I like Porsche 911s. If I'm a preacher, you can't drive one unless you're Joel Osteen. <laughs> I like Porsche 911s. I like uh, old Mercedes with a beautiful big grill and the pretty lines. I like BMWs, uh, 3 Series, 5 Series. They invented the sports sedan. Their inline six-cylinder motor really is what made them famous. I like Jaguars just because of the way they look. They don't run good, but they look good. I like Aston Martins because James, James Bond had one. I like Triumph TR6s. It's the is the quintessential British sports car. Long front end with a six-cylinder in it, built low to the ground. On safe days, I like Volvos. <laughs> Had one in college, very safe car. In fact, it was so safe, I could take that car in Spartanburg over there was a certain railroad track. I could jump and get all four wheels off the ground. <laughs> Never hurt the car. Indestructible car. I like old Dodge Challengers and Chargers. Big blocks, big 440. I knew I'd get somebody. Big 440, big block. I like those cars. I like Chrysler Imperials. I like that secret uh, muscle car, the Plymouth GTX. Nobody knows about it. It's a beautiful car. Buick's okay. Old 
Mobile 442. I like Chevrolets. I like the old Chevrolet 55, 57. I like the Chevrolet Chevelle. I like the Chevrolet Impala. It's a beautiful car. I might take a look at a Corvette. No, and I can't have one of those either. I even like the Camaro. I like Ford. Ford was late to the muscle car game, the Galaxies and the Fairlanes, and finally in 65, they built the Ford Mustang. I like a Mustang. But my all-time favorite car of any of them is a 1965, 66 Pontiac GTO. It is a standalone car. 64, they came out with it as an option for the Le Mans with the headlights side by side. 65, it's a standalone standalone car where they stacked the headlights in 66 and 7. They made it so beautiful. I have read about Pontiac GTOs, looked at Pontiac GTOs, studied Pontiac GTOs. I have knowledge. I would love one day to restore either a 65 or a 66 Pontiac GTO with that 389 cubic inch motor and three two-barrel carburetors, a four-speed cue ball shifter. I only have one problem. I know a good bit about a GTO. But I don't know how to fix one. I don't know how to work on one. I can't take my knowledge and put it into action. I'm not a mechanic. You see, a good mechanic, good mechanic has two things. I have one thing, knowledge. A good mechanic has two things, knowledge his knowledge, he knows the car, and then the ability to actually put what he knows into action. Look, I probably have enough knowledge that I might even be able to tell you what's wrong with your car. I just can't do anything about it. A good mechanic can listen, uh, can listen and, and look and feel and hear, determine the problem, and then actually do something about it. A good mechanic has two things, knowledge and action. Like a good mechanic, a solid Christian has two things, knowledge and action. Or for our purposes here today, doctrine, got to have that, and devotion. In the passage before us, Jesus is walking with the disciples. He is teaching two things. He's teaching doctrine and devotion. Put it in its context. Here we are at, at the end of chapter 9. So much has happened in the eight chapters. We've come off the mountain of transfiguration. He's done healings. He has preached. People have gathered. He has fed thousands. But at the end of chapter 9, the public teaching ministry of Jesus is over. No more standing in front of big crowds. No more things like the Sermon on the Mount. No more of that. He's moving on now. He's headed in one direction. The journey he is on is taking him all the way to Jerusalem. And there at Jerusalem, Jesus will die on the cross. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ will die on the cross in the place of sinners. He will take the wrath of God away from us so that we might have forgiveness and live. That's what he does. 
not there yet. As he walks along with his disciples, Jesus is teaching the disciples. And as they get back to a place called Capernaum, that's, that's Andrew and Peter, their brothers, that's their hometown. They are probably in Andrew and Peter's house. They sit down in a private setting, all 12 of the disciples and Jesus, and Jesus teaches the 12 this radical way that Christian doctrine plays out in Christian devotion. Now, I didn't know how else to say it today other than doctrine, here's how I'm going to say it, doctrine and devotion are always hand in hand. Got to have them both. If all you have is doctrine and you know a lot of stuff, you are a legalist and a Pharisee. Nobody wants to be around you. If all you have is devotion, then you are a really nice, loving heretic. You need both, doctrine and devotion. Let's, let's go back through the passage, point out a couple of things, then come here and uh, make a few points. Join me there, verse 30. Let's just walk through it. A little bit of running commentary. They went on from there. They're headed into Galilee and through Galilee. And for the first time in his ministry with the disciples, he did not want anybody to know. They're not drawing crowds. They're not doing miracles. He didn't want anybody to know, verse 31, because he was spending time privately teaching the disciples. It's not all action. There has to be some teaching. For the first time, he's narrowing it down with these 12, and he is pouring into them. Verse 31 tells us what he's teaching. Look at it, verse 31. Here's the gospel. He's teaching the gospel. They don't have it yet. This is the second time he's te teaching this. The first time, they didn't get it. It was a terrible disaster. The third time, they still won't get it. Right here, he's trying to give them the content of the gospel. And he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, you'd like to mark that word delivered. If you have the NIV, it may say something like betrayed. Delivered over, handed over, it's an important phrase. Delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. Here's a genuine death. They will kill him, says it again, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So here is the second time Jesus is giving us his life, death, resurrection. That's why he came. Not just to teach, not just an example, but for the atonement. So after hearing this, the disciples who have been with Jesus all this time, verse 32, they do not get it. They didn't get it last time. They bought it back up last time, and it was a disaster. So this time they don't get it, but they're afraid to ask anything, so they don't bring it back up. After he's told them that he's going to die and be raised from the dead, come down the page of verse 33, we find out they get into Capernaum, probably Andrew and Peter's house, we have some children in the house. We're going to see them in just a little bit. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, hey, uh, I heard you guys having a conversation. What were you all talking about? And amazingly enough, we find out that it's, it's, like, a, it's like a couple of schoolboys caught doing something wrong. Verse 34, they kept silent because they know they're wrong. Your teacher walked in the classroom and you know something's happened. You ask somebody, what's happened? Everybody's quiet. That's what they're doing here. Verse 34, everybody kept silent because they knew what they were talking about. 
and it was inappropriate after Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Verse 34, they were arguing with one another. Who's the greatest? I mean, they've been in this movement. Jesus is going in their mind. They don't understand he is the son of God yet, that he's going to be raised from the dead. They think he's the political leader, Messiah. He's going there to die. There's got to be a second in line. Who's the greatest here? They'll keep doing this. James and John will have this conversation privately with Jesus. Maybe it's Peter, the great leader. Anyway, they're having a debate. Who's going to be the next one in charge? And Jesus at that moment decides, you're not getting the doctrine into devotion. Verse 35, he sat down and he called them. Here comes, this is what a rabbi does. He called them there. Verse 35, he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, here's the lesson, if anyone would be first, Peter, you want to be the leader? John, you think because you are loved so much, you want to, if, anybody, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I'm not thinking you're getting this. So, so here's what he does. He calls a little boy. Come over here. Let's just call him a boy. That's the next verse, verse 35, 36. He took a child and he put the child in the middle of the circle. Mark is the only one who ever, Mark is the, this is the only time in the entire Bible we see Jesus do this. What a beautiful picture. This is not what it's about, but it is a beautiful picture. He took the child and he put him in the midst of them and, and taking that child in his arms. Here's the visual, here's the parable. He said to them, verse 37, Whoever receives, this is not childlike faith, this is receiving. Whoever receives one such child in my name. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me in the chain of events. And if you receive me, you receive my father who sent me. Okay, there's the story. Pointed out some details. Let's go back, see if we can learn some lessons. There are just two, two lessons. Here's the first one. Number one, we must have solid doctrine. Must have it. Verses 30 and 31 and 32, that is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching. Let me just say, as a sub-point, part of discipleship Part of discipleship is the transfer of information. Discipleship is a lot of things. Discipleship is learning by example. Discipleship is having one life impact another life. Discipleship is accountability. Discipleship is praying with someone. But discipleship has to have information. I mean, notice where I get that in verse 30 and 31. Jesus walking with them and he is teaching them, verse 31. He's teaching them a corpus, a body of beliefs. It is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's important for us to grow. We grow by pursuing holiness. We grow by praying for one another. We grow by the disciplines of the faith. But we grow when we have information. A lady stopped me earlier and wanted to know how, what are some things she can do to maybe grow as a Christian. 2024 is coming up here. A couple of things that I would do if I were seeking to grow deeper in my faith and taking my faith seriously, I would commit, here's the first thing I would do, I would commit to read the Bible through 
Read the Bible through this year. Maybe you've already done that. It's going to take you three, four chapters a day. You can do that. That's about 25 minutes in the morning. Read the Bible through this year. Let's say if you have that, then I would start memorizing things. I would memorize a couple of key pieces of information. One is the Lord's Prayer. I would memorize the Lord's Prayer. A lot of you already have that. You grew up in a liturgical church. You already have that. That is great. Use that as a template for your prayer life. Not only that, I would memorize the Ten Commandments. Know what the Ten Commandments are. Here is the law of God. These are the expectations of God and have a good explanation of the Ten Commandments. On, on top of that, if you want to go a little further, I would memorize the 23rd Psalm. If you have that, pick another Psalm. Or let's step outside of what the Bible teaches. I would come a few centuries later to the Apostles' Creed. A lot of you have heard that, the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed are the essentials of Christianity. I would go and find out what is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I would make this year a year I learned the Sermon on the Mount. And 2024, here at Hickory Grove, we will have a recommended book every month to read. I would read it. You want to grow in your faith? Then we must have solid doctrine, and part of discipleship is information. Let me give you something else. Discipleship is not just information. Discipleship is Christ-saturated. Christ-saturated. Let me show you what I mean. All of verse 31, the whole, the whole verse, listen to the different pieces as Jesus teaches them about himself in verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, this is what he said. Let's just break it down. The Son of Man. Paul, Son of Man. I would just write Son of Man. Here we have Jesus teaching of his humanity. He's not just fully God. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. We, we trust his perfect life. When you and I are saved from our sins, we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus, but it is a righteousness that he earned on earth as a man. The way we understand it, when God created us in his image, he created Adam and Eve. Adam, the first Adam, fell into sin. Jesus comes as the perfect Adam, the second Adam, as the Son of Man, we are delivered by his perfect life. But not only that, you look at that verse, the Son of Man must be delivered. What a, look at the word delivered, must be betrayed. The Son of Man delivered up or, or handed over. I don't normally spend time with verb tenses, but it's important you see this. This shouldn't be a Greek class, but let me just give you the verb tense here. I think it's important. Here in the text, when Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered, it is in something called the present future tense. The present future tense. What that means is, it's going to happen in the future in Jerusalem, but it's already a reality. This, this phrase, delivered up or handed over, it's used to describe what, is Jesus, what does Judas do? We know that Judas is the betrayer and he delivered over Jesus. Or what the Sanhedrin did, what the Sanhedrin did when they gave him up, delivered, same word. Or what Pilate did when he delivered him over. What Jesus is saying here is the future course of events is already in motion and decided and the process has begun. Has, has begun. Now, it's good for us to get a grasp 
on what has happened to Jesus. That it was several things. One, it is the divine plan of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is the divine plan of God. Romans 8, 32, go look it up if you'd like. The divine plan of God. It is also the destructive plan of man. Why? Because Pontius Pilate did that, the Sanhedrin, Judas, all of them were wrong. So how do you reconcile the plan of God, which is perfect and good and without sin, and the destructive, sinful plots of men? Well, when Peter stood to preach Jesus, in Acts chapter 2, for the very first time, he brought these two together, and this is what he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. And the point is, although it happened with humans on earth, behind that is this beautiful, perfect, divine plan of God that ultimately it is God giving over his only son to die in our place. It brings another word then. Another word. If I had to write words, I would write this one down. Atonement. Verse 31, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed. They will kill him, and when he is killed. Here is the scandal of Christianity. Here is the stumbling block of the cross. Here is the flashpoint of history called the doctrine of atonement. Why atonement? The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. A wage is what you earn when you work. Your life, because of its sin, has earned death. It's what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. The wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. What we deserve is death. Christianity must stand there in that before it moves on to the light. We must stand what we deserve is death. And substitutionary atonement teaches there is a substitute that took what we deserve. That's Jesus. He's dying on the cross here. That's what he's saying. Here is Jesus standing as our substitute so that the judgment of God falls on Jesus. This is what happens at the cross. This is why the cross is so important for us. That the judgment of God falls on Jesus, the righteousness that he earned is given to me, and the way you appropriate that for yourself is by believing that Jesus died for you. When that happens, your sin, your sin is paid for. When that happens, guilt is removed. When that happens, new life begins. There's another word here that Jesus brings to the table is the word victory, victory. Look what, the, look what the text says in verse 31. For he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him when he is killed. Here's the victory. After three days, he will rise. Victory. What, what are the things we celebrate as Christians, we mark them down. The incarnation, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas when God became man, born of a virgin. We, we celebrate that. And then we think about the cross of Jesus that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Here's the Apostles' Creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead. We look at that and think, Jesus did that for us. 
But it doesn't, doesn't stop there. We go to Easter. Easter tells us after three days, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. Now listen, why is this important as a Christian? Why does the resurrection make that much difference? If he died for my sins on the cross, why do I need the resurrection? I'll give you a couple of things. One is the resurrection reminds us of the absolution of our sins, that, that our sins are absolutely, he has absolved our sins. It reminds us of that. Here's the second thing. The resurrection tells us that Jesus not only took our sin, he defeated sin and death. Death couldn't hold him down. Out of the grave he comes. The resurrection tells us he defeated death. That means we don't have to fear death. You know what the resurrection tells us? The resurrection tells us that he wasn't just a man. He's fully God. The power of Jesus. The resurrection gives us, if you have a terminal illness, you've lost someone close to you that's a believer, the resurrection gives us hope for eternity. This makes it so that Christians, we can hear these terrible things that are coming down the pipe at us and take it because this is not our home. I got a text from a preacher today. He's older than me. Uh, this week he's been texting me and, and praying for me, and I've, I've appreciated it. It came out of nowhere. I don't know if he knows something that's going on with me or what. But he sent me all these texts, and one of the texts that he said to me, uh, be encouraged, we're almost home. By the way, you're a little older than me. You're a little closer than I am. <laughs> but the truth is, I mean, if it's 10 years closer, what does it matter? We, we're almost home, and the resurrection tells us we actually have a home to go to. So he gives them life, death, and resurrection, and you see their deliberation in verse 32. They've heard it for the second time. They, don't, they don't, just don't get it. They don't get it. But they will get it. Peter will get it. He'll preach till he can't preach anymore. Legend says they crucified Peter upside down. John will get it. John will give his life and preach till they exile him out somewhere on a rock of an island. They will get it. Brothers and sisters, sometimes you hear something that's so hard, you don't get it, you, 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 travel, you, you, you travel over the page of the Bible and it's not registering. You stay there, you will get it. You stay in there, the Spirit will take that and He will put it in your heart. One day you're, you'll think, what? Look, if you've got a wayward child that knows the right things, you've taught them all your life, and you think it hasn't, the Spirit one day might take that truth drive it deep in her heart that her eyes would open and see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. But not yet. Verse 32. Not yet. You see, we, we must have, don't ever abandon good doctrine. We, we must have good doctrine, especially now, 2024. We live in a world that is increasingly evil with, with things that we would never dream of. We've got to drive these pylons deep. Good doctrine. Let me give you something else. Second point, number two. <clears throat> Remember, if all you have is good doctrine, you're lopsided. You're not, that's not all Christianity. Number two, we must have real devotion. Real devotion. That's from verse 33 all the way to the very end. What do you see here? Well, the first two verses of this passage, verse 33 and 34, 
you find out uh, they are still very prideful. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they were ashamed. See, they, they clammed up, verse 34, because on the way they were arguing with one another about who is the greatest. What you find right there in verse 33 and 34 is that pride is poison. Pride is poison. Pride keeps you from admitting sin. Pride keeps you from helping people. Pride keeps you from seeking forgiveness. Pride keeps you from apologizing. Pride keeps you from seeing that you need God to save you. Pride keeps you from being thinking that you're in the wrong. It's a poison. And it has poisoned the relationships of those disciples. There are 12 men that have never, there's never been other humans on this planet that have ever been closer to Jesus. They are close to the Son of God and they're still fighting about who's the greatest. Not only that, they've just heard Jesus say, I am going to Jerusalem to die. It's a poison. I mean, it's something we all fight with. It's a poison. And you should ask God to help you to, to remove that pride, help you to fight that. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. I don't want God opposed to me. There's something else you find here, not just that pride is a poison. You find that we are to die to self. Here's a radical, con convicting passage. It is an upside down. Verse 35 is completely upside down. He sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if any one of you, Peter, you want to be first? If any one of you would be first, he must be servant of all. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That is completely upside down from everything you learned about leadership. Now there's some folks coming around with servant leaders. But here Jesus has said, here is the radical nature of being a follower of mine is a dying to self. What does it look like in the economy of Christianity, in the economy of following Christ? To be a leader, it means you are last of all. You're not worried about your rights, protecting your reputation. You're last of all. You're not going to walk around with the what about me. Why? Because you're last. This is Jesus saying, last of all. Servant. Here's the... Here's the picture of what it means to succeed as a Christian, to serve other people. What other people? All the other people. He presses it even further now. If it's not enough that to, to be first in the kingdom of God, you're last. And this is a theme that goes all throughout the Bible. He then brings another level, another level, level deeper, verse 36 and 37. And that is a sacrifice of status. Look what he does in verse 36. It is unprecedented in verse 36. He took a child. Maybe it was Peter's son or daughter, Andrew's. They're in their house probably. He took a child and he put him in the midst of them, in the circle, the 12 men around, Jesus in the middle with this, let's just say it's a little boy. Now, for us, we'll conjure up the picture of a child. We have this, this sort of built-in sentimentality. We think you do anything, everything's for the children. Back then, that is not. They did love their children, but they didn't bring anything to the table. Child doesn't contribute anything. And so Jesus has pulled this little child, 
What a picture. Mark gives it to us. Nobody else does. Jesus wraps this child up in his arms. It's a living parable and for them to see. And then he teaches them in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever takes this child that can't bring anything to you, that's not going to give you anything, they can't pay rent. When you give importance to someone that is unimportant, somebody that has nothing to offer to you, can't contribute to your life, when you, when you care for all of those that nobody else cares for, that, that's cross-centered ministry. Here's the, here's the doctrine up here in verse 30 and 31 and 32. There's the cross up there, how that is lived out, verse 33 down through verse 37. Look, here's the, here's the Christian impulse. Right? The Christian impulse is to help. The, the, the disciples, they're aspiring for greatness. Jesus says, no, you get your eyes down here. There are a couple of things we do here at Hickory Grove that give some of that feel. You, here at Hickory Grove, every week we have the food pantry. That food pantry, there are several hundred people that come through the food pantry. Not everybody that comes through will be thankful. Not everybody that comes through deserves that food. That's not our business. Be the last of all and you're servant of all. You receive somebody that can't give you anything. Every week our hearts and hammers go out and they build ramps for people that not church members, won't ever come to this church, will forget our church. Jesus says, you, if you receive, like, receive people like I'm receiving this little child and you do so in my name, you see, it's the essence of a God-centered ministry. This humble service, what happens is this humble service to people that can actually do nothing for you, it's the high point of Christ-centered, cross-centered living. You understand that for, for Christians, they go hand in hand, hand in hand, doctrine and devotion. They're always hand in hand. Solid doctrine takes us to the cross of Jesus where sinners are saved. It's where we all have been saved. And after being saved, what happens is that devotion ends up in selfless, selfless serving. It's how you know if Christianity is real. The doctrine, Jesus Christ lived perfectly, died on the cross for your sins. God raised him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is interceding right now. He is our only hope. That's doctrine. Devotion, that has changed me so much. I want to serve, sacrifice, give mercy. Give mercy to people that can't do anything for you. Doctrine, Jesus saves. Devotion, I'll serve him. Do you have both? Has the doctrine of the cross gripped your heart so that devotion to Christ makes you live for him? Today, I hope it will.
you join me as we close our time of preaching before we sing our last song? And let's close in a time of commitment and prayer. With your heads bowed this morning. Let's go to the Lord in just a moment of prayer. Maybe this morning God has brought someone to your mind or something to your mind that needs to change. Maybe you're, you're like this. You've got the doctrine, but the devotion is lacking. Today's a good day to ask God to help you. When we sing, you want to come forward? Ask God to help you. Maybe you're struggling with the change, carrying guilt. Come here. Come here to the cross of Christ. The doctrine of the cross says Jesus died on the cross for sinners. That's you. Put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've done that. Maybe it, it hasn't, hasn't been showing up in your attitude toward other people or your actions as a believer. Doctrine and devotion. God has spoken to your heart this morning. You want somebody to pray with you. It's the Lord's day. God's people, you want to come forward and pray? I'd love for you to do that. We sing our closing song. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us, for the cross of Christ, for the call of devotion. Find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.